for his death. Thank you all for uh, having me here. It's a privilege to be here with you all. Uh, Su Sang introduced me. Uh, let me just give you some personal background story. I uh, am married with three sons, no girls, only boys, 28, 27, 27, 25, 21, three sons. Uh, two of them, two older ones are in grad school, one the younger one is in undergrad, but uh, they're all living with us now, all three of them. They came back uh, for the summer, and uh, it's pretty crowded having uh, three grown adult children in their house. It, it, it's, it's a privilege, it's a, it's a real privilege to be here. And, and I can see that you're facing this way, and you have this beautiful scenery. How am I going to compete against this? This is incredible. Uh, I, I, I'd like to thank uh, Pastor Susan for inviting me to this wonderful church and, and, and this retreat center. How, how else can I ever come to this place like Lake Tahoe? I'm from Queens, New York. You know, and uh, it's, it's great uh, to be here. Thanks to uh, Praise Team. Thank you so much. I heard that uh, you didn't even get a chance to eat dinner. Our Praise Team members, they always sacrifice so much. And uh, I know how hard it is to get up here and unpack and play uh, the instruments and, and prepare. And then you have to pack your stuff and go back to church and do all that stuff. Uh, I know how difficult it is, and uh, I, I always tell our praise team members that their reward will be great in heaven. There's nothing that we can give them now, but uh, if that's any consolation, <laughs> they don't appreciate that that much. But um, the, uh, a new chapter, or, or a new beginning, or a new chapter, that's, that's the theme of your retreat. And I thought uh, it'd be nice to give you a, uh, I have uh, a chance to uh, preach four sermons, uh, give you a little uh, bit of what, what it means to start a new church, uh, what it means to start a new community, uh, what, it, what it means to start something. Uh, but I'm going to be primarily focusing on the church, the doctrine of the church, and the, uh, the implication of uh, being a church. So uh, first sermon tonight is going to be from Ephesians chapter 3, 1 to 13. Nothing you haven't heard before. I mean, you know, Pastor Sue Sang Park is an eloquent, articulate preacher, mad smart, and uh, he, uh, he'll probably preach through all this stuff already. Nothing new, but uh, uh, it, it's during this kind of retreat where you get together and, 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 and be more focused on, on these uh, particular texts. So uh, let's go through uh, Ephesians first. Hopefully, I can, I can be short today. Hopefully. But who knows when, when the Holy Spirit starts working. You know, uh, it, it, it's, it's difficult to stop him. Uh, but... Uh, but uh, uh, Pastor Susang preaches about 
45 to 50 minutes <laughs> on Sunday. That's his average you know, uh, length of sermon. I'll, I can't do less than that because we're at a retreat center. I can't, can, I, can I do less than that? All right, you're, you're probably thinking, oh, we'll determine that after tonight's sermon. Uh, starting tomorrow, we can, we can do whatever. But uh, Ephesians chapter 3, 1 to 13. Do you have that? All right, let's, uh, let's, uh, let, me, let me read that uh, text for you. This is God's word. I'm reading from English Standard Version. Uh, what translation do you use in your term? ESV? Okay, I'm going to go back and forth with ESV and, and New International Version. This is ESV, English Standard Version. This is a reading of God's word. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, that has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. The mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, the grace was given to preach the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring uh, to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities and heavenly places. This was according to his eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. This is reading of God's word. We are made for community and connection. A central theme that runs throughout the Bible is that God is not creating only people belong to him. He's not only saving individuals uh, and he's not just dealing with one-on-one, but he is creating and building a, a, a community, which he is a central participant. Um, there is a lot of mystery about Trinity, uh, and, uh, you know, it's hard to explain Trinity. And if you ever try to explain Trinity, you, you'll probably, you know, mm-hmm. fall into some kind of heresy. So uh, don't use any metaphors, don't use any examples, and uh, you're safe with that. Don't use any, like, oh, Trinity is like, then you'll probably fall into heresy or something. But there's a lot of mystery. I mean, there's mystery about Trinity. However, the fact that God has revealed himself in, in this triune God makes it clear that uh, that community is intrinsic to uh, the structure of reality and intrinsic to uh, uh, God being himself, a God of community. God is a God uh, in, in three persons. And having been made in the image of God, we are made for community and connection as well. Uh, we live uh, with this interdependence for one another. 
we live out of accordance with our true nature and uh, that uh, we, we come together. It wasn't, it wasn't because Adam lacked anything in, in, in Genesis 1 that God created Eve. When Adam was perfect, God created Eve. So uh, community was not a result of fall. Uh, community was just an expression of a perfect state of mankind. And, and, and that's what God is teaching us. And, and it's, it's the same way with, with our service for the church. And I'm, I'm, assuming, I'm assuming a lot of things here uh, as I'm giving you first uh, talk. I'm assuming that uh, most of you belong to this church. I'm assuming that, uh, that, uh, that, that I'm preaching to a lot of uh, believers, though uh, uh, size, you know, uh, church this size, there might be some people who are seeking, people who are questioning, people who are doubting, people who are exploring, and, and that's fine, and that's why we're here, and I'm, I'm glad that you're here. If you're questioning, if you have any questions about Christianity, if you're wondering about Christianity, if you're just thinking, does this make sense? Uh, then this is great, and uh, I hope that uh, you can spend some time to talk to uh, people. But, but I'm assuming that uh, as, as, as Christians, that uh, in, in your service to, uh, for church, that uh, we uh, work together uh, in a way that's, that's in the context of community. Uh, let, me, let, me, let me quote this from, from this guy named Dan Allender, uh, who uh, is a Christian counselor. He wrote this book called Intimate Allies, and, and, and this is what it says, quote, God does not exclusively fill the human heart. He made mankind to need more than himself. The staggering humility of God to make something that was not to be fully satisfied with the creator and the creation is incomprehensible. God does not exclusively fill the human heart with himself. You agree with that statement? Those of you who have been coming to church for a long time, those of you who belong to church, do you remember singing songs like, You're all I want? You're all I want? Only Jesus? That's all I need? I don't need anything else? I don't need you, I don't need you, I don't need you. If I have Jesus, that's all I need. Well, Dan Allender says, wrong, wrong. That's not how God made you. That God does not fill you exclusively with himself. He fills you with others, with friends. The staggering humility of God saying, look, I can be all you need, and I am, but this is how you're going to experience it through a community, through others. And in the same way, with the ser- in your Christian service, when you serve the church, Romans 12.1, this is what it says, uh, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies plural, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, singular, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. It is the corporate worship. It's when all of us come together that it becomes 
one single service. That's how God receives it. He receives it as one single sacrifice. It's the church as a corporate body that's in view here as a living sacrifice. Not, not just the lives of individual Christians. Uh, we're to offer ourselves to God as a community, as a church. You see, for Paul, it seems like the Apostle Paul, community has priority over individuality. And somehow, growing up in America, or those, some of you who were born here, I, I, I wasn't born in this country, I was born in uh, Seoul, Korea, in the early uh, 60s, I was born in 1963, only 10 years after the Korean War. And I came to the States in 1976 at the tender age of 13. But I, I was educated in this country enough, and I have a Western mindset that uh, somehow this American rugged individualism has crept into my worldview somehow. And I think like that. But back where I come from, in South Korea, back in the days, now, I mean, Western individualism has taken over Korea too, but uh, back in the days, where we, we used to do everything together. Like, it's, it's like the whole village, the whole community. And that's, that's what Apostle Paul has in mind here. It's a community. And that's the mystery that the Apostle Paul is talking about in Ephesians. So we'll consider three things. That was just introduction. Like, that was just introduction. Uh, so we're going to talk about this mystery. Try to answer three questions. What's the, what, what is the mystery? Number two, how do we see it? Number three, how do we experience it? Or how do we get it? Uh, what is the mystery? How do we see it, and how do we experience it? What is the mystery? Verses 1 to 6. But, but in these 13 verses, the word mystery in the original language appears three times. Though in English it appears four times, but the original Greek, mosterion, appears three times, verse 3, verse 4, and verse 9. The point is that this word is very important. It's a very important word for us to understand, to understand the whole the context of this text. See, in English, a mystery is something that is dark, obscure, secret, puzzling. Uh, however, the Greek word mysterion is different. Uh, mystery in the New Testament does not mean something that's spooky, but something that is hidden, but without divine revelation, it cannot be understood, but it has been somehow revealed, the Apostle Paul says here. The mystery was hidden for ages in God, verse 9. The mystery was not made known to sons of men or other generations in the way it's been revealed. It's revealed now, verse 5. The mystery has now been revealed to God's holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit, verse 5. Now that mysterion is not anything that's dark anymore, but it's been revealed. It's, it's like open now. Uh, the mystery is made known to Paul how, in verse 3, it says, by revelation. Paul was given this revelation to know the mystery. Look at verse 6 with me. This is what it says, once again. 
The mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. New International Version translates this way, that the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together as one body, sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. So the key word here in verse 6 is togetherness. Togetherness. They're fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers. And New International Version translators have used just one word, togetherness. They're together. The Gentiles and Israelites are together. This is revolutionary. This is not just, this is, this is not like, you know, like Chinese and Koreans getting together. Wow, that's amazing. I mean, that's, it's, this is, this is, this is an incredible thing if you understand first century context. But the implication here is that people from different backgrounds and walks of life are part of this citizenship, family, and building block, and they come together. People who belong to different races, culture, background, experiences, they all come together. And it's only in this context that you can have this kind of togetherness. This kind of togetherness. And that's what he's talking about. What's that mystery? That togetherness. How do we see it? What does that togetherness look like? This musterion of Jesus Christ is the creation of the international community, which is the church. International community, which is the church. The church is the body of Christ, which we share together. This is the gospel. I mean, you can talk about the gospel in many different ways, but this is the gospel from, from, from Ephesians chapter 3, 1 to 13. This is the gospel message. It's the togetherness of God's people. Now look at verse 10 with me. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. God is creating this mysterious community uh, uh, called church, which is a living proof of his wisdom. You know God is wise. People say God is omniscient, that he knows everything. God is above all of us. He says his foolishness is even wiser than our wisdom. So he is wise. Right? You all agree with that? God is wise. God's wise. And God said, I'm going, to sh- I'm going to show this world, and I'm going to show uh, the universe how wise I am. I'm going to show off my wisdom. And this is how he decided to show his wisdom, the church. Revive Presbyterian church for your case. It could be seen as a universal church of Jesus Christ, but, but also your local church. Like I said in the introduction, a central theme which runs throughout the Bible is that God is creating a people who belong to him. 
whether in the Old Testament or the New Testament, the work of God is the calling of a people. You see, not just individuals. Yes, that too, but a new community. The mystery is that we're part of this grand story of God redeeming his world through this big idea of the church. God works through the church. Church is a theater of God's wisdom. Church is a theater of God's wisdom. Uh, Therefore, the major lesson we learn from this passage is the biblical centrality of the church. As you begin this new chapter, as, as, as the uh, uh, revived uh, Presbyterian church. The major lesson we learn is the biblical centrality of the church. It's understandable that many are critical of many of the church's inherited structures and traditions. Many. You know. And uh, there are no perfect churches in this world. There is no perfect church. Not one. I mean, this is what a Baptist preacher named Charles Spurgeon said, right? Don't look for a perfect church. But if you ever find a perfect church, please don't join it. Because the moment you join that church, it's going to become imperfect. That's what he said. The moment you join, it's going to be imperfect. So if you have this expectation idea of, oh, revived church, revived Presbyterian, it's going to be so much different from... Well, it's going to be different, but it ain't going to be perfect. Tell you that much. Even my church is not perfect. And I'm the pastor. No, I'm just kidding. There was one young lady who just recently left the church. Came to me, talked to a lot of people. Said, I can't stay in this church. Said, why? Why not? Number one, you don't do enough social justice stuff in this church. But I try, but it's not enough. And I said, okay. Number two, she has three reasons. She gave me three reasons why she's leaving the church. Number two, second reason, because uh, you, don't have, you don't have a culture where a single woman can grow and be nurtured in this church. This church is all for families. And if you, if you don't have, if you if you only have family, and if you're not married, and if you don't have children, you you're like, you don't belong. That's that's the vibe, that's the culture that uh, of this church. And 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 I said, okay, sorry. I accept that. I took that criticism. It was hard, but it was it's, it's, there's truth to that. And then she said, thirdly. You as a pastor are not a caring person. Uh, yeah, that's what she said. And I said, uh, well, that, you, I agree 100%. Because I don't care about you right now. And, uh, well, sorry, sorry. This is a little New York coming out of me. I'm, I got to be... This is, this is like... California, I, I'm supposed to be nice. <laughs> I'm, I, I'm, I'm supposed to be nice to you all. Like, you know, hi, how are you? Like, like that song by BTS, Fake Love, you know, all that stuff. But uh, 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 that's too much New York. But anyway, uh, so, I, 
so when, when people leave our church, I, I always ask them to give a public testimony. And tell us why you're leaving church so we can, we can all grow together. But, you know, you're not committing sin. We're not committing sin. There's, you can part ways with grace. It's all about grace. And she did. You know, and she shared stuff. And uh, we prayed. There's no perfect church. And there, it's understandable that some say that they believe in Jesus, but they don't believe in the church. It's understandable. Like Gandhi said, I, I, I like Jesus, but I don't like Christians. And a lot of younger folks, you're, 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 not, you're not all that fond of this institutionalized, you know, structured church of, you know, church as an organization. The church has two components. Church is both organization and an organism, right? Church organization and organism. We can't just pick one or the other. It's both organization and organism. But every church is in need of renewal and reform. Every church. But we must realize that God has not abandoned his church. God has determined to make his wisdom known through his church. You see, the church is central to the gospel. The gospel we proclaim, like I said, is too much, too individualistic. The gospel of Christ, which Paul preaches, not that he died and rose again, not only to save sinners like me and you, though he did, but also to create a single new humanity. The gospel is not only to redeem us, yes, that's true, but to also adopt us into God's family. Not only to reconcile us to God, but also to reconcile us to one another. That's the gospel. The church is the integral central part of the gospel. You can't have the gospel without the church. And, and, and I want to spend, I mean, if you have any questions or, or you know, you're like, oh, I want to challenge that statement, I'm, it's, I'm more, it's, it's, I'm, I'll be happy to have discussion. I'll be happy to. I would, love, I would actually welcome that. Uh, I'll be hanging around here until tomorrow and, you know, walking around here so you can catch me. And we'll talk about that stuff. The church is essential that the Bible teaches that Christians are birthed and nurtured by the church. Church is not only central in the redemptive history or or church is not only central in the gospel, but church ought to be central in Christian's life. Christian's life. You see, the church is our mother. The church is your mother. Your church is your mother. Don't be making fun of your mother too much. Where do I get that idea from, that the church is your mother? We learned that from our church history. Why did some teachers in the early church refer to the church as the mother? As early as 3rd century, 
3rd century AD, Cyprian of Carthage wrote, quote, You cannot have God as your father unless you have the church for your mother. You can't call God your father unless the church is your mother. That's what Cyprian of Carthage said in 3rd century. We always say, Father God, Father God, that's a typical Korean-American prayer line. Father God, you know. And I tell our church folks sometimes, can you just pick one? Because it's always confusing, Father God, Father God. But it's good, Father God, God Father. God Father sounds weird. Father God's better. (laughs) Father God's better. You cannot have God as your father unless you have the church for your mother. This is a teaching and understanding of the church that, uh, that the Cyprian had that is consistent with faithful Christians. It, it's consistent throughout church history, from Augustine, Cyprian, to Augustine, to Reformation, to Luther, to Calvin, and even through 19th century, and until now, we all still believe that. For example, John Calvin, his discussion of Christ's church and his institutes of Christian religion. This is what he says, John Calvin. This is 16th century. He writes, quote, But because it is now our intention to discuss the visible church, let us learn even from the simple title of mother how useful, indeed, how necessary it is that we should know her. For there is no other way to enter into life unless the mother conceives us in her womb, give us birth, nourish us at at her uh, breast, and lastly, unless she keep us under her care and guidance until putting off mortal flesh, we become like the angels in heaven. Our weakness does not allow us to be dismissed from her school until we have been pupils all our lives. Church is your mother. That's why I'm committed to God's church. Because God is committed to his church. That's why I'm committed to my church. And I can ask you, I'm sure I'm preaching to the choir, but I'm asking you to be more committed to your church as you begin this new chapter. As you begin this new chapter. And we must expect people from all nations to come and worship the Lord of all. That's the mysterion. Where if it wasn't for the church, you wouldn't have, like, this experience of meeting people from different backgrounds. I lead a small group in my church. Now it's like somewhat, you know, we planted other small groups, but, but my original group, it was me and my wife. We're both Korean-Americans. There was a Taiwanese husband, Egyptian wife. That was one couple. We had uh, a husband from Chile and a wife from China. And we had uh, an Indian woman and a white couple. That was part of our small group. Yo, we had a lot of fun. It was incredible. And we sat together, and this is what he said. If it wasn't for this church, we would never cross paths. We would never cross paths. I told Supriya, Supriya, I, I wouldn't just go to your house and eat. 
there. Food and I can't, you can't, I can't invite you. I mean, if it wasn't for this church, it was glorious, glorious to see people from different backgrounds coming together and worshiping. That's the church. And that's the chapter that you're starting. How glorious is that? How beautiful is that? How wonderful would that be? Oh, gosh. Now, how do you experience it? How do you get it? How do you get it into your heart? Uh, We talked about the revelation of mystery, togetherness of God's people. We talked about the plan of mystery, the international community called church. Now we uh, want to see the foundation and the center of the mystery. uh, And that center and foundation of mystery is a person rather than a concept. In verse 4, it says, this mystery is the mystery of Christ. Christ is the key to this mystery. Christ is both source and substance. That's what it says. The mystery is that the Gentiles are together and in promise in Christ Jesus. And verse 4, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. Verse 11. Oh, man, I can go on and on. This was according to the eternal purpose of he was realized Christ Jesus, our Lord. That purpose was in Jesus Christ. So it's only in Christ that we have the benefits such as boldness, access, confidence, and faith to come together. In Christ. And it is him who suffered and died for his church. You know, there's a passage in Ephesians chapter 5, if you go you know, forward a couple chapters, uh, there's a chapter about uh, this passage of uh, husbands and wives. I must performed over 100, I don't know, maybe about 200 weddings. And uh, I just did a wedding last uh, past Tuesday. Uh, and uh, I always ask our church folks to pick their passage. I say, pick your own passage, you know, and then tell me uh, to preach on it. And, and, and give me the time, too. You want me to preach five minutes, eight minutes, or ten minutes, and fifteen minutes? And then they say, oh, about five to eight minutes, I want you to preach from this passage. Not a single person, or not a single woman asked me to preach from Ephesians 5, 22. Not a single woman asked me to preach from Ephesians 5.22. But you can't, you, can't, you can't talk about 5.22 without talking about 5.21. 5.22 don't make no sense without 5.21. 5.21 says submitting to one another. And, and we have some married couples here. If, 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 if a Christian husband at any time comes to you wives and says, but honey, Ephesians 5.22 says you should obey and submit to your husband. If, if, if you guys ever use this line, shame on you. Shame on you. Don't you ever use this line. Unless you use verse 23. Even as Christ sacrificed himself and 25 and following. 
this passage gives us an insight into this intensity and the breadth of Jesus Christ's love for his church. And I want to focus on the husband's, not on the husband's relationship with his wife. That's not my focus. I want to look at what this passage tells us about Christ's love and commitment to his bride, the church. God did not get inspiration for loving the church from, uh, this, from marriage. But God created marriage to illustrate his love for the church. And this is indeed a profound mystery. You see, uh, the marriage relationship between man and woman is, is an imperfect echo of the perfect love and commitment Christ has for his bride, the church. And I say this to you know, people when I do premarital counseling too. What's your expectation when you get married? What's one plus one? Two. What's one sinner plus one sinner? Two sinners. Duh, not happy marriage. <laughs> one sinner plus one sinner equals two sinners. Simple math. But, uh, but consider what this passage is teaching us about the depth of Christ's love for his church. That he loved his church. That's what it's talking about. We can't hijack this passage and just focus on husband and wife. That's not really the intention of this text. It's about Christ and his church. How much does Christ love the church? How much does Jesus love you as the church? How much does he love you? So much that he gave himself up for us. Christ loves you. He died for you individually, yes. But he also, he died for the church. The church is the bride of Jesus Christ. So beautiful. These days, when I do wedding, and, and you know, I specifically order people, ushers, to close the door when you know, everybody comes in and it's the last time when I, when I say, let's all stand and greet the bride, and the door opens, and the scene is just a father, and sometimes these days it's, it's both parents standing next to uh, the bride, and then they're standing there, and the door opens, and they're walking in, and a lot of times grooms, these guys are just bawling. I'm like, what the heck? You know, I'm, I'm puking here, and they're crying, and, and I, have, I have zero EQ, so uh, I, I just can't relate. I just can't relate. But, uh, but anyway, I'm a pastor, so I have to pretend I'm relating. And, uh, and I'm like, oh, it's okay. There are, you know, isn't she beautiful, wonderful? And, and this guy's like, even past Tuesday, he was like, oh, she's so beautiful. She's so beautiful. I've been married 28 years. July 28, like three weeks from now, we will celebrate our 28th wedding anniversary. 28 years. This woman, man, she was organizing our, our pictures and albums, 
And, uh, you know, we can't carry all these big albums anymore, so she was, like, digitizing it. And she put it on our, her phone and her iPad, and then I kind of, like, got some pictures from her. And I was looking at our old wedding album. Those of you who are married, guys, you might relate. If you don't, sorry, uh, you might relate. I was looking at these pictures, and I saw my wife 28 years ago, and she's so beautiful. She's just beautiful, wise, intelligent, sexy, uh, deep, thoughtful person. But, uh, but, but 28 years ago, she's like, just hot. <laughs> it's like, whoa! And then I look at myself, 28 years ago, I'm like a little dork. <laughs> We're the same age. She's, she was 27, I was 27. And I, and I, look, at, I look at Candace. Candace, what were you thinking? <laughs> Candace, what were you thinking when you married me? Because this guy's like a poor seminarian. Had no future. <laughs> and she decided to, that's, that's called grace. <laughs> that's grace. <laughs> Sue Sang, you understand what I'm talking about, right? <laughs> you can relate. Grace. And, uh, and, then, and then ever since then, that was about three weeks ago, I started being really nice to her. <laughs> it was a total change. It was a total change. I'm like, wow. She was, and, and I cannot, you know, we're, now we're both 55 years old, and we're like, you know, we're already thinking about our future and what we're going to do, and... And our youngest son, who's very ambitious, our, our youngest is very ambitious. I think he's going to be very rich. And he already, he already promised us that he's going to put us in a really nice nursing home. So, <laughs> so uh, we, we, uh, we're looking forward to that. I mean, we're just counting on it. He already promised he's going to put us in a nice nursing home. So, but then, you know, we're getting old and, and older, and, and I'm looking back, and I'm like, she's gorgeous. I have this new appreciation for her. That's how Jesus sees you, and even more. You might think, oh, I'm not good enough. Oh, I didn't do this, I didn't do that. But the church is a bride of Jesus, where Jesus gave himself and washed with his blood and put on his robe of righteousness and said, you're beautiful. You're glorious. And that's how Jesus sees you, and he's weeping over you. He's weeping over you because you're so beautiful, because you're so wonderful, you see. And he gave himself up for the church. That's why Apostle Paul was able to suffer for the church. Don't worry about me. I'll suffer for you because that's, that's my glory. 
And that's why we're able to suffer for the church. That's why we can follow Apostle Paul's example. Paul's suffering became his church's glory. I must remind you that the Apostle Paul was a part of the church, and we're part of his glorious body of Jesus Christ. And uh, we, we, we also suffer for Christ's church without self-pity. Oh, no one's recognizing me without self-pity. Our sacrifice and our suffering and our devotion will be glory for your church. As we seek to understand that mystery, that multi-ethnic, diverse Christian community called the church. And Paul is passionate about this church because he's passionate about the gospel. And he calls it the unsearchable riches of Jesus Christ. His enthusiasm is not self-centered, it is God-centered. He understands that it's through the church that God's manifold wisdom is being made known. The church is the dearest place on earth when the glorious gospel is the dearest truth of our hearts. If you hold the gospel so dearly to your heart, you will put right in it the church of Jesus Christ. As you begin this new chapter, as we begin this retreat, we'll explore more about what it means to be a church tomorrow morning, tomorrow night, and finally Sunday morning. And I hope you can continue to have discourse and dialogue. And it's been my experience being a pastor for 30 years that, uh, that these retreats, it's not just guest speaker, you know, guest speaker, yeah, I mean, you can get like a couple, one or two insights, and, and, and that's all you're going to get. But, but the insight you're going to get is when you're meeting with people, sitting together, eating together, praying, small groups, and that's when, that's, that's when God's going to speak to you too. So I want to encourage you to do that as you enjoy this beautiful scenery and, uh, and, 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 and this retreat place. Uh, let, me, let me close in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for giving us this opportunity. As uh, Revived Presbyterian Church uh, begins with this uh, new chapter, I help them to understand what it means to be the church. Help them to understand the place of the church in your history of redemption. God, uh, help us to have sound, solid, consistent understanding of the gospel and your church. And I thank you for this group. Continue to... uh, Be with us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.